a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Greetings, one and all. Welcome along to episode 118, part A of the Howie Games, featuring boxer turned lawyer, La Morton Dor. IBO welterweight world champion, the Black Panther, Love Until a couple of weeks ago, I hadn't actually heard of Lovemore, and I reckon many of you will be in the same boat, but please continue listening. It is a story that I would love for you to hear. It all came about because I was reading an article in the Weekend Australian magazine by a fella called Greg Bearup, who's a great writer and eventually put me onto Lovemore, so thanks to Greg. The first paragraph went like this. I'll actually read you the first paragraph of Greg's article. Well, you know, he's a world champion, and you don't get to world champion status if you're not special, says Johnny Lewis. The doyen of Australian boxing speaks with a flat cadence of a bygone Australia, like an idling Holden special. The spectators, they always got their money's worth. Lovemore was a very brave fighter. He was a warrior. He adds, you don't need to be born starving to be a great boxer. But gee, it helps. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Love Moors is one of those type of stories I always envisage this pod was aimed at telling. Hardship, willpower, self-belief and ultimately success. However, Love Moors' story in many ways is a really, really difficult one to hear. He was born in South Africa in the apartheid era and the injustice and brutality he was subjected to reflects the trauma that millions of his countrymen faced under a brutal, inhuman regime. I'll be frank with you, at times in this episode, I didn't know how to respond to Lovemore's stories of his early life. I didn't know what to say next. I didn't know what to ask next because my upbringing, and presumably most of yours, thankfully, didn't equip me to really comprehend what he was telling me. As an aside, I love how many kids listen to this podcast, often with their parents. Now, I can't advise you what your kids should or shouldn't listen to. What I would say is listen to this episode yourself and then decide. For me, I want my two kids to hear it because there are so many lessons to be learnt from Lovemore. Some about personal struggle, self-belief and incredible resilience. Others, probably more importantly, about injustice, inequality and the damage that racism inflicts on society. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seem like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes After spending two hours with Lovemore I still can't quite fathom how he can forgive It's a wonderful quality Lovemore's released a book about his life titled Tough Love, The Amazing True Story of a Boxing World Champion Turned Lawyer. This podcast, it's only just scratching the surface. It's really just the entree to his captivating book. It is a book that will stay with you for a long time. Please read it. This is the story of Lovemore and Doe, a fighter in every sense of the word. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me 
We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games. A gentleman who is a multiple world champion in the ring, originally born in South Africa, now resides in Australia, a lawyer, and a man who's written a book called Tough Love, which I found wonderful, uplifting, but also quite upsetting along the way, to be completely honest. Love more. Welcome to the Howie Games. It is lovely to see your smile. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for having me on the program. There is so much to talk about with you. What was the process of writing a book? Was it enjoyable? Was it difficult? How was it for you? I would say it was difficult because I had to relive some of the things that, you know, I, I went through growing up in South Africa. So there were, it took me almost five years to write the book because at times I would, I would get depressed, you know, just having to relive some of the atrocities that, you know, I experienced as a child. So I would put it away. Sometimes I wouldn't touch it for about eight months. You know, I would say, you know, thanks to my brother, Rarok, who would always call me and say, Lamo, you got to work on that project. You got to work on the book. And then I'll get back and work on it. So, yeah, it wasn't easy. But in a way, I think it was great that I wrote the book because it was it, it was therapeutic for me. Often, you know, you hear people say, if you're scared of something, you need to face it up. And I believe in that, you know, because... I used to have a lot of nightmares because of what I experienced, you know, growing up in apartheid South Africa. But I noticed, you know, having written this book, it's like I relived it again. And, you know, I don't have those nightmares anymore. Just so you know where we're coming from, I've been fortunate enough, love more, to spend a lot of time in Africa. I spent maybe eight months there as a young fella from 1996. So after apartheid had broken down, I've taken my father there. I've taken my young family there to South Africa two years ago. And it... You read those Wilbur Smith-type romantic novels about Africa and people say you visit Africa and there's something about the smell of the trees or, or the dirt or the plains and it gets in your blood. And you read that as, as a young bloke from Australia and think this can't be true. And the first time you get off that plane in Johannesburg or Cape Town and get out of the cities, there is something captivating about your continent and your country. How do you look at the modern South Africa now. Do you know what I mean about that? But yeah, I know exactly what you mean. That's one thing about Africa, and I agree with what you said. I, I personally, I believe life started in Africa. So, you know, when you go to Africa, you get that feeling. You feel like, you know, you just arrived where life started. So that's why you get that feeling. Mm. The air is different. Everything is different. It's funny, like, you know, I, I got a very bad sinus problem, and it all started, you know, when I came to Australia. And I noticed every time I'm, you know, I travel back to Africa, my nostrils are fine. The sinus problem is gone. So <laughs> I don't know whether it's something to do with the air over there. <laughs> or maybe the air is not over polluted compared to the air here in Australia or other countries. I don't know. But every time I travel back there, my sinus problem is gone. It's funny you say that my, my wife gets hay fever here in Australia and the time she spends in Africa, she's always saying to me, I've got no hay fever, I've got no hay fever. So reading your book, Love More, and, and people should read Tough Love and take their children through it, which we're lucky enough to have a lot of kids listen on this show. There's so many lessons in it. Some of them are pretty brutal. So I'll just ask you up front, a lot of it was really hard for me to read. So normally we start at the start with anyone. Are you happy to speak openly about the things you wrote about? Because oh, yes. as you said, a lot of it, caused you a lot of grief. I don't want to bring up anything that causes you to be upset, to be frank, mate. I know, no, I'm happy to share everything. That's why I put it, no, that's why I wrote a book, to share with the world. So I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. So tell me about your family and, and where you grew up. 
I was born in a small town called Musina. It's right at the border between South Africa and Zimbabwe. It used to be called Messina back in the day, but you know, following you know um, the democratic you know uh, South Africa, it was changed back to its original name, which is Musina. It's a small coal mine town. I was born you know during that apartheid era, where there was a lot of segregation, you know. Um, so and it was really tough you know for us black people because we were treated as savages, you know, in our own country. We didn't have a right to vote, you know, and we lived in the waste areas, you could say, you know. Um, I came from a very poor family. There were seven children, and I'm the, actually the second born, but the first son in the family. And we lived in a, you know, two-bedroom shack. We slept on the floor. You know, we were so poor that, you know, sometimes a day or two will go by without a meal. And, and I write about these things in my book, and I'm like... I didn't start school till I was about, you know, nine years of age. And and when I started school, I had to find a job so I could pay for my school uniform. I could pay, pay for my school fees. So that's just how it was back then, you know. But apart from that, you know, there was a lot of uh, crime going on. You know, when people are poor, they resort to crime. So even within, you know, uh, the townships where we blacks lived, there was so much crime, you know, so much black on black violence. But then there was also the system that was treating us mm-hmm. like savages. You know, we were treated worse than dogs only because we happened to be black in our own country of birth. There's so many things to talk about there. Firstly, people will have noticed I'm only calling you love more so far because you say in your book that in 20 years in Australia, no Australian has managed to get your surname right. So firstly, you need to tell me how to pronounce your surname and tell me the origins of what I can only describe as a spectacular, beautiful name. Yes, you're right. You know, for the past 20-something years that I've been here, the Australians have butchered my name. And, <laughs> and my last name is pronounced Ndo. <laughs> it's pronounced Ndo, but everybody here calls me Nadu. And it all started with the Fox Sports commentators when I was boxing. They couldn't get my name right, so they started calling me Nadu. IBO welterweight world champion, the Black Panther, more Nadu. And it just stuck and everybody calls me Nadu. Uh, to a point that sometimes I just refer myself to, my, to not, as Nadu. My children think their last name is Nadu, and every time I tell them, no, it's Ndo, they think, they tell them, oh, Dad, you're trying to change our last name. <laughs> 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 but Ndo means elephant. Most Africans, we are actually named after animals. So we are named after the elephant. In fact, in my tribe, because every tribe had its own state, so I come from the Vanderland, and this, the head state there was called Tohoyando, and that's where my last name comes from, that Tohoyando. The head of the state, that's what it means, Tohoyando, but my last name is Ndo. And the first name, Lovemore, which, as I said, is a spectacular name, was that... Did that have meaning? That came from your parents, obviously? Yes, my mom gave me the name. Honestly, I don't know what she was thinking when she gave it to me. If she was still alive, I would ask her. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lovemore, these are difficult questions to ask now, but I'll just ask them and you answer them however you choose to. What impression do you have as a 7, 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old of yourself as a young black child growing up in apartheid South Africa? 
I was an angry young man, very angry. I was angry with everything that was, you know, surrounded me. I was angry of the poverty. You know, I was angry about the way, you know, we were treated by the racist regime. I was poor as well. So those are the only things I can think about. But despite all that, we had so much love at home. That's one thing that, you know, uh, I, I carry every day, you know, despite the poverty, despite the treatment that we received from the racist regime, we were still loved at home. We were taught the history of our people because, you know, I recall when I was growing up, when I started school, the education we received, it wasn't the best education. You know, we had what's called the Bantu education system, which was pretty much a system designed to fail black people. And we knew nothing about our history. We were never taught about our history. So we had to learn from our parents and grandparents. So one of the things that I miss, you know, it's uh, when I was growing up as a little child, you know, we would sit, you know, every night we would sit and listen to our parents, our grandparents tell us all this folklore, all these beautiful stories, but which was a way of teaching us about our history. So I miss that. And if you were being told by a regime that you are inferior... And it's a horrible thought, it's a horrible term, but if you're being told that as a young child, is it hard not to believe that? I look, we did believe it. I hated being black because of what I was fed. I just felt being black was a sin because we had to worship white people. You know, you had to refer to every white person as boss, bus. That's the name, the word they used in Afrikaans. Their wives, you refer to them as madame or missus. Their children as, you know, uh, clan bus, little bus, clan missus, little madame. The older I became, the more I realized there was nothing wrong with being black. And I appreciated being black. It's just a system that was trying to make us feel that way. You talk about in your book, mate, uh, some things that the average 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old in Australia is never going to experience. You talked about moving to Zimbabwe and coming back through Bait Bridge, a place I know really well from my from travels in Africa, the border at Bait Bridge, and then coming home and there being a, a domestic dispute where you as a very young man ended up with a gun in your hand. Yes. It's funny because I always question this, you know, uh, despite all the poverty in Africa, but we always have access to guns. So you want to ask yourself, and it made me think, Somebody must be supplying these guns to us, hoping that, you know, we're going to kill ourselves. And, and we had access to all kinds of guns. It was really bad, you know, and, and a lot of lives were lost because, of, you know, you give guns to the wrong people and they get misused. But look, my family moved to South Afri- from South Africa to Zimbabwe in 1979 so that we could start school in Zimbabwe because we believed in the education system in Zimbabwe that it was better compared to, to the South African. But when we got there, it was at the time when um, they just taken over from Ian Smith. So we got at a time where there was still an, a civil war that was happening. And so I had to witness a lot of atrocities there. You know, for the first time, I witnessed someone getting murdered. For the first time, I murdered people getting raped. For the first time, I murdered people getting butchered. And I was only nine years of age at the time. You know, so it wasn't, you know, we, we thought moving to Zimbabwe would help us, but it didn't. You went from one 
bad situation to another. I ended up studying school over there in Zimbabwe, and, and but eventually we moved back to South Africa. But at the time I moved back to South Africa, it wasn't any better because at the time the ANC, you know, was trying to bring down the racist regime. So there was a lot of uh, fighting going on. And again, like I said, you know, there was also black on black violence because some people, if you know about the tire, the tire, what they used to call the necklace, you know, which means they would put a, you know, if they thought you were a traitor, they would put a, you know, a tire around your neck and they would, you know, put petrol on it and then, they, you know, they would lit it. So I've seen people, you know, being burnt like that and killed that way. And I was only a child. But it gets worse, you know, when I was about 13 years of age, we were protesting, you know, against the use of white teachers in our schools, whereas black teachers couldn't teach in white schools. And the only reason it was done was because they wanted to continue enforcing that Bantu education system on us. And I recall during one of the protests, a friend of mine, you know, who was only 12 years of age, you know, he got shot and he died in my arms. So if you ask me, you know, about my childhood, those are the things I can think about. And they're not the best memories. So how, as a 12 and 13-year-old, do you deal with what you've just described to me? You, be, you just become desensitised because of what you see every day. And, and again, it goes to what I said, you know, I was a very angry young man, and that's where it boiled from, just seeing all these things. I knew my life meant, well, you know, meant nothing. I knew I could die at any time, you know, and seeing people dying, you know, was like a normal thing because it was happening every day. We'll get back to that point. Love more. And I'm asking questions now, obviously, which I have no real understanding of. So if I ask a question in a wrong way, I apologize before I ask it. Everybody talked about Deba, Nelson Mandela, as a man that had an incredible ability to forgive after what he'd been put through. How, as you were growing up, and I'll ask you about what it was like when apartheid was struck from the system, for want of a better term, how do you move on with your life interacting with a group of people at this stage, white people that have caused so much pain and anguish to you and your family and your loved ones? Again, I learned from Nelson Mandela. You know, when Mandela was released from custody, I remember one of the things he said, look, I looked back and I said, I had to forgive those people who put me in there. I had to forgive them. If I didn't forgive them, it's like I was going to continue to be in prison for the rest of my life. So I've learned that from Nelson Mandela and I use that, you know, everywhere in life. Forgive, you got to forgive and move on in life. Doesn't mean you forget, but you got to forgive. People often ask me, do you, are you a bit reserved toward Caucasian people? Do you hate white people because of what happened? No, I don't. You know, I, love, I live with white people. I, you know, I, I dated white people. No, it doesn't change me because I believe, look, there are good and bad people everywhere, in every race. It doesn't matter what color of your skin is. And I believe, and I actually feel sorry for those white South Africans who did whatever they did to us because they didn't know any other way. That's what they were taught. They were, they were taught to hate. You know, like Nelson Mandela says, you know, we are not born hating, but we are taught to hate. And if those people were taught to love from day one, they would have loved everybody and not did what they did. So I actually feel sorry for them. 
you know, and, and, and you know, you forgive and I've forgiven everybody, which is where I think I look at the truth and reconciliation that they had in South Africa. I think that was the best thing that ever happened, which is where I have, <clears throat> I have so much respect for Nelson Mandela. What he did there was to try and show the whole nation that, you know what, we can continue hating and say, you know, we got to do to them what they did to us. Otherwise, we're not going to move forward. And I think that's the whole message that came from the truth and reconciliation. I, well, it's, it's, it's one thing to be able to talk about putting behind you. It must take a, a tremendous amount of effort to put behind you. One last question on the racial issues we're talking about before we get into the ring, which I'm really looking forward to chatting to you about the sweet science of boxing. The last year and a half, Black Lives Matter has been highlighted throughout the world from someone that has experienced racism at its basis, most disgusting level, what does it do to a person in a community? Look, I always tell everybody that, you know, racism is a problem of the world. People often speak of apartheid as being you know, a past problem of South Africa. Now, that's wrong. I don't agree with that. And you know, I say apartheid is a problem of the world. Just because it's not legislated doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm. Because as far as I'm concerned, if you taught someone from whether it's excelling, if you taught someone from excelling because of their, you know, skin color, you know, their race, their gender or sexual preference, that's a form of apartheid. This happens everywhere in the world, you know, Australia included. I hope you're right, mate. I hope you're right. Um, Early on in your book, you talked about I think it was fishing in the famous Limpopo River. And as a young man, that was part of your chores, for want of a better term. Now, my kids, who I hope begin to know how lucky they are by listening to stories like yours, a chore for them, mate, is unpacking the dishwasher or making their bed, and they whinge about that. Your chores involved getting into the Limpopo. Yes, which was you know cro- infested with crocodiles. But again... That was a responsibility that came with being the first son in the family. So I had to help the family make a living. So one of the things I had to do was to jump into that crocodile-infested river and catch fish. And the funny thing is, uh, you know, superstition had me believe, you know, I was immune. You know, immune from the crocodiles. Immune from the crocodiles. Well, are you here? So I guess it was proven to be right. <laughs> well, some people died. <laughs> some people were, you know, were killed by crocodiles. The thing is, you know, my, my tribe, the Vanda people, always believe in spirits. So we always believe that if you do good by others, the spirits will always protect you. So I always believed I was protected by the spirits. And, you know, they often used to say, you know, if somebody got killed by a crocodile, they'll be saying, ah, no, yeah, it's what they did in their past life. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, so superstition had me believe in I was immune. So I had to jump into the crocodile-infested, you know, river and catch fish so we could survive. Back to love more in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games, one of the most captivating players in the AFL, Nick Natanui. Who doesn't love watching the big fella in action? Nick is actually about to be front and centre in Amazon Prime's cracking new AFL documentary series titled Making Their Mark, which is actually released on March 12th. Keep an eye out for it. Nick, well, he's just a wonderful human being. His mum taught him many, many beautiful lessons, including the importance of helping others. Tell me 
what your mum did to keep you boys ticking over? Well, my mum worked um, at the youth shelter, so she worked with homeless families at this place called Swan Emergency Accommodation. She worked there for uh, for years, for about 20 years, but she also worked at the youth shelter with, you know, struggling kids and that. So, uh, And she also worked at the, uh, the women's refuge for women um, and families escaping domestic violence. So... She was constantly working and always in good causes like that. She was she had a heart for it and a passion for it. And uh, the, the best thing about that was, you know, I come from a pretty low socioeconomic area and a lot of those children who were in my class or at my school, you know, lived at the same residence where my mum worked at. So I had a, a pretty good understanding for their lifestyle and, and some of the hardships they'd been through. And, yeah, life was hard for us at times, but, you know, some of these families that, you know, I grew up with were going through the same thing, if not worse. So... Uh, I've never really been one to judge people. Um, I've always given people a chance. And I think that's come from what my mother's instilled in us and, and some of the learnings I've taken from, I guess, her workplace. So if you had to say, Nick, that you took one thing from your mum, she struck me as a woman that was teaching you lessons daily, but one general theme that you've tried to apply in your life, what would it be? Oh, just to, just to help others. You just don't know who it's going to really affect and you know, I look at my life and the help we've received over the years has gotten me to a point where I'm able to do the same. So, uh, yeah, you can go without, but, um, you know, you're not going to die. That's the biggest thing. I think we've always learned that even though we might not get the brand new pair of Jordans at Christmas or a brand new bike, mm. um, you know, I think you get a bigger sense of joy when you're, when you're giving the gift rather than receiving the gift. So I've always had that in the back of my mind. That's Nick Nat Nui next up on the show. Alrighty, let's get back to Love More. Love More, this is a pretty serious discussion we're having, so I just want to lighten it up a bit. Uh, frequent listeners to this show know that my kids, 11 and 9, they love to ask questions of the guest, and I actually read two chapters of your book to my 9-year-old son. His name is Mac, but his nickname is not as cool as the Black Panther. His nickname that he gave himself is the Big Penguin. Don't ask me why. <laughs> and his favourite moment in life, my friend, was when we went to Cape Town uh, and we went swimming with penguins in the ocean. It blew his mind. But he was lucky enough to spend some time in Africa, so I said, well, you ask Lovemore whatever you want. This is his question. Are you ready for this? Yes. Hi, Lovemore. Big penguin here. We're pumped you're on the show. And when I went to South Africa, I loved it. It was amazing. And I loved all the animals there. I just had the best time I've ever had. But what I want to know is what's your favourite animal? Because my favourite African animal would probably be... I really like giraffes, but then I like lions, so they're my two favourite African animals. Whew, did you get all that? Well, I got all that from Mr Penguin. <laughs> I like the name. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr Penguin, I would say my favourite animal is the elephant because that's my last name. Ndo means elephant. So, yes, um, I, I think they're just beautiful creatures. And it saddens me when I see people, you know, go poaching and kill these beautiful mm. animals. But, yes, you know, my favourite animal is the, is the elephant. I will pass that on to the penguin. Those that want to follow your journey in more detail must read your book, Tough Love. You talked about in the player profile, Love More, that one of your nicknames was Red, and you got that in a soccer field because you were frequently red-carded. Tell me about that and how it led you to a professional boxing career. 
Now, you recall earlier when I told you, you know, that uh, as a young man growing up in South Africa, I was very angry mm. and it had to do with, uh, with the environment. But I knew that a sport could be my ticket, you know, out of poverty or my ticket of, out of apartheid South Africa. So I tried all types of sports, but I was good at soccer. But the problem is I wouldn't last long in the field because of my anger issues. I used to get red carded all the time. I was so angry that if each time somebody play, we played and somebody played rough, I would turn around and knock them out. Then I'll get, you know, red carded. It happened so many times. People, often people used to bet, plays bets to see how long I was going to last in the field. You know, that's how bad it was. <laughs> often people would see me chasing another player instead of chasing the ball. There was a lot of anger. Um, now, I remember on one of these occasions, I was playing and this kid played rough and I knocked him out cold. They got a security guard to escort me out of the field. And as he was you know, escorting me, he said to me, kid, I don't think soccer is for you because you don't last long in the field. You should come out and try boxing. Well, I thought I had nothing to lose, so I went there the next day. It turned out this guy was a boxing trainer himself and a boxer himself. So I recall the first day we went there and they said to me, Lamo, we got to work on your anger because it's not going to help you. At first I thought, nah, nah, this is fighting. You need to be angry. You need to be angry. But I was wrong, you know, because boxing is scientific. Boxing is like playing a chess or game. I mean, a, ga a game of chess. You got to have a clear mind. Otherwise, you're just going gonna to keep making more mistakes and that's when you get beat up. You know, you try solving a problem when you're angry. You just make more mistakes, but if you calm down, you fix it. I had to find out the, the you know the hard way because he put me in sparring you know with big bigger boys, and every time I was getting angry, I was getting beat up. So eventually, I realized I needed to start listening. I realized each time I'll calm down, then I would counter react, you know, counter punch, and I look good. That changed me, not just as a boxer, but it also changed me as a person. And the way I always tell people, and it changed me into this calm and collected person that I am today. What I always tell people is, you know, growing up in South Africa then, you know, where almost every teenager, you know, walked around with a knife or a gun, had I not changed my attitude, you know, I'll probably be dead today or locked up in jail. So I'm very grateful, you know, to boxing because, you know, it changed me as a person to this calm, collected person that I am. So that's how my boxing career started. And what was your very first fight? You do your training, you're learning the beautiful art that is boxing. Can you recall your first amateur fight? I actually recall it, yes, because i only been training for three months and I had my first fight. And I recall this guy's name was Robert. And this guy used to work in the mines. He was built like a he-man. <laughs> this guy looked strong and he had already won the <laughs> national title. You know, so everybody was saying Lamo is going to get killed. Everybody was concerned for my safety. Even, at, you know, my school teachers told me, Lamo, you need to pull out of this fight. You're going to get hurt. But I knew, the guy underestimated me. And I knew he had some weaknesses, you know. He used to drink a lot. And he was a womanizer. So he underestimated me, you know. He just thought he was just going to be a walk in the park. But I trained hard for that fight. I recall the fight like yesterday. I recall the first round. You know, he just walked forward, coming towards me, you know, like he was going to knock me out. And, and I recall my trainer just kept telling me, Lamo, you got to stay calm, you got to stay calm. And I, I listened to my trainer and, and I recall for some reason he just came forward and 
For some reason, I closed my eyes. I don't know why I closed my eyes. I still question myself up to this day. Why did I close my eyes? But I closed my eyes as he threw a punch. I ducked and I came back with a left hook. I knocked him out cold. That was it? That's it. I knocked him out cold. And then I took you know, almost about 10, 10 minutes to revive him. I was shocked. So was everybody shocked. You know, to me, it was a lucky punch. I have to admit, it was a lucky punch, but that lucky punch changed me because if it wasn't for that lucky punch, I don't think, I, you know, if I got beat in that fight, I wouldn't have continued. So that lucky punch made me who I am today. It was because uh. of that lucky punch I went on to become a world champion. I recall the next day when I went to school, you know, I was treated like a hero, you know, during the school assembly, you know, the school principal was talking about it. So, you know, I like that. I said, oh, no, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to continue doing this. <laughs> so you've, you've painted a beautiful picture of boxing. You've painted a picture of apartheid South Africa, which was still in place, obviously, at this stage, in your early stages of your fighting career. What happened when a black man and a white man fought in a ring? Tough. Back you- then, we used to have uh, two organisations an organization for white people and an organization for black people. So you, would, you used to have a, a, you know, a white champion and a black champion in every division. But eventually they decided to integrate and form one organization so you could have just one champion. But the problem was all the officials were white. So you know mm-hmm. what that meant. For a black fighter to win, you had to knock out your opponent. You know, because you could beat him up every round. As long as he made it to the end of the fight, he would win on points. So that that made it, you know, really difficult for us black fighters. And we ended up resorting to bad tactics, you know, like, you know, I used to break people's noses using my elbow because I I had to do it. You know, it was the only way to win, you know. So, yeah, so there was still that issue. But despite that, you know, I still think boxing, in a way, helped South Africans unite. Because the thing with boxing, you know, we could get into the ring pummel each other for 10, 12 rounds. How often do you see at the end of the round, at the fight, fighters hug each other? Yeah. We, we respect each other at the end. So despite the segregation that was going on, we would find at the end of the fight, you know, we respected each other. So I believe in a way, boxing helped, you know, bring some changes in South Africa. The breakdown, the dismantling, the tearing down of apartheid, it was quite a... It's not like it was there one day and, and disappeared the next. Quite a lengthy process. Obviously, the focal point of that was Mandela eventually being released from prison, Robben Island, etc. Those should read A Long Walk to Freedom, his book. If you haven't read it, it's quite extraordinary. Can you remember watching? There's Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela, a free man taking his first steps into a new South Africa. I can remember watching when he walked out and there was cameras everywhere. Can you remember watching and where were you and what was the emotion? Oh, yeah, I remember. I was watching. I was in Benoni in, uh, in South Africa. Benoni is near Boxback. Boxback was more like uh, where the most racist whites lived. So I recall, in fact, I recall before he was released, you know, most whites used to tell you know, there are black servants, you know, this is bad for South Africa. Mm. A terrorist has just been, is going to get released. That's how they looked at Mandela. They looked at him as a terrorist. But I recall that moment, it was, it meant the world to me. You know, it meant the world to me to see him finally, you know, 
being released. It was a big thing for all South Africans. Look, the thing about Mandela is um, he could have been released earlier, but he didn't want to be released until there was freedom for everybody. For a man to give away 27 years of his life, give away the opportunity to spend time with his children, you know, lose that opportunity to see your children grow, you know, into young adults. He, one of his children died while he was in custody. You know, he didn't even get, you know, an opportunity to go bury his son. That's sad. So that's why I've got so much respect for the man. That's the end of Love Morton Doll, part A. See you for part B. Listener.